Thanks, guys. The idea that, uh, you know, for, for a sinner, someone like me, the idea that my uh, hellish power kind of sin can't stand before the cross, this is really wobbly, is a really gospel idea, right? It's just really encouraging. So thanks, guys, for uh, singing twice today. Really good stuff. And Peter, did you say we're going to do that for a congregational? I think, oh, did, you say, did you say that? I forgot if you did, but okay. Maybe we talked. I was, where did I hear that? Yeah. Um, boy, that's going to be, is that this twist thing or? Is that, where that, is that what that does? Too much movement. There we go. I think I did it. Yes. Nice. Okay, that feels good. All right. Uh, well, hey, welcome to Hiawatha Church again. My name's Chris. If you're visiting for the first time, welcome to our church. We are going to dive right into our series in the book of Song of Solomon. We have three weeks left, so if you're just joining us, you're kind of catching the end of a series here. We're in uh, chapter 7. Verses 11 to 8, 4. It's only eight chapters, so we have a couple weeks after this. Uh, just to remind you guys, Spencer mentioned, but next week we're not here for our spring retreat. But after that, we have two more weeks uh, in Song of Solomon before we go into a new series, the 24th, which will be a big questions-themed series. So if you have questions you'd want the elders and pastors of the church to preach on, anything at all about a book of the Bible, a difficult-to-interpret verse, a theological topic, uh, anything at all about our, maybe our philosophy of ministry here, a vision, at the church, ask us. Uh, write it on your blue cards, email us, uh, and we would love to try to work that into a sermon if possible. No promises because some things just aren't, uh, all questions are great, just some things aren't really weavable into a sermon. So no promises, but we'll do our best uh, to do that. So please start to feed us some things. We already got about seven or eight from last week, and, uh, which is a great place to start, but we'd love about uh, that many more, if not uh, triple that. So, All right, so we're going to dive right into the Song of Solomon. If you're new to the Bible or this book, uh, it is uh, classified as wisdom literature of the Old Testament with a few other books, right smack dab, right in the middle of the Old Testament. A lot of those books are written by King Solomon, son of David. Uh, one of the uh, individuals the Bible's careful to mention has tons of wisdom, uh, God-ordained wisdom to not just govern the people because he asks for it. He's one of the kings, greatest kings of Israel in a lot of ways, also one of the biggest failures, but it's a different story. Um, but he also uh, is given wisdom to, uh, in an inspired manner, to write and to write the words of God, to pen them down for us to not just hear from him, but to hear from God. And it's true for every biblical author. Uh, Solomon just uh, happens to be, uh, or not an exception, happens to be a very wise one. And, and ones that, one that writes in proverbial wisdom, poetic wisdom, uh, is, is the genre we're in. So because of that, difficult to interpret, notoriously difficult book, actually. In fact, you can't find a book of the Bible where people just in a general sense throughout history have said, this is tougher than Song of Solomon. This is definitely at the top of the list of just uh, you know, question marks all over the place, just words, who's speaking where, uh, concepts, just what is this really trying to mean and convey because it's layered, it's poetic, it's Old Testament literature. So they kind of team up poetry and Old Testament wisdom literature kind of team up to make this really tricky. But uh, one of the best ways, though, to kind of blow with an interpretive fan to kind of blow away the, the haze or the fog from the book. It's just to know it's about marriage. So this is about a man's love for his wife. King Solomon's the, the man in the book, and his wife is an unnamed woman, but she's prominent, of course, and speaks a lot. But they speak about each other. They're just talking. It spans from their engagement to their wedding and their marriage, but they're talking the whole time about those things and about each other's bodies, about each other's character, and uh, all in poetry. And so it goes back and forth, and then some of her single friends speak up at times too, but mostly them are speaking. But understand at least that, and we're in this part of the book now where they've already been married, they've consummated the marriage. There's been some, some degree of separation. She's dreamed about it, so we're not sure if it's just emotional, perceived separation, or physical, but that's not important. 
it's just important to know it happened and that they're coming back together. So that's in context. This is kind of post-marriage conflict resolution time a little bit, or at least the, uh, whatever chasm was there uh, is being fixed, and they're coming back together to have a bit of a secondary um, consummation. So it's about that, but on top of that, it's, there's another layer to it that we apply to all genres of Scripture, but especially poetry like this, and especially the theme of marriage, and that is to see that this is not about marriage. It's speaking beyond itself to a greater form of marriage, and that's God's spiritual marriage to his people, which the Bible is tireless about thematically, Old and New Testament. And one of the most common things God says is, I'm a husband in the Bible. I'm like a good husband in my love for you, and you are like a bride responding to the love of, of her husband. That's, that's the way he conveys, and it's not a one-to-one correlation, obviously. It's not a perfect one, but because no marriages are perfect. But he says, when marriages are clicking on all cylinders, when they're really hitting and firing on all cylinders, uh, that is a, a great de- physical depiction of my love for you, my type of faithful love, my type of sacrificial love for you. So Old and New Testament, it's, uh, Christ picks up on this, of course, in the New. We've been harping on that, how he's uh, the ultimate husband, form of husband-like love for the people of God and how he dies for our sins and loves us in that sacrificial manner. So have at least that in mind and, and ask yourself those questions when you read this. And when we read it today, but as you might read it uh, later today or with your spouse or with your friends, community group, later in life, anytime, the rest of your life. At least have that in mind. Where, how is Solomon here? How does he depict God? How does he depict Christ? And, and when you read the woman speaking, how does that depict the church's kind of reciprocated love or the church's praise of Christ, the way she adores uh, Solomon's body and his character and his marital love and, and so forth? When we do that, it gets a lot clearer. Not completely clear by any stretch, but a lot clearer than um, it, would, it would otherwise. So that's primarily how we've been reading it and how we're going to read it today. It's not just principles for physical marriage, but ultimately a, a display of God's uh, faithful marital love for broken sinners who rebel, who elsewhere in the scriptures are called prostitutes, who don't appreciate the love uh, that they're being given by God, uh, but to whom God is faithful nonetheless. So let's read this in Song 711. Two eight four is today's passage. She's speaking uh, primarily, actually entirely today. Verse 11. Come, my beloved, let us go out into the fields and lodge in the villages. Let us go out early to the vineyards and see whether the vines have budded, whether the grape blossoms have opened and the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my love. The mandrakes give forth fragrance and beside our doors are all choice fruits, new as well as old. Which, you have, which I have laid up for you, O my beloved. Oh, that you were like a brother to me who nursed at my mother's breasts. If I found you outside, I would kiss you and none would despise me. I would lead you and bring you into the house of my mother, she who used to teach me. I would give you spiced wine to drink, the juice of my pomegranate. His left hand is under my head and his right hand embraces me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. All right, so basically what's going on here, I kind of summarized the context earlier, but uh, this week's passage mixed with last week's passage, remember they're approaching a secondary consummation, they're about to have sex again. In a lot of ways, these two segments serve as the most explicitly erotic segments of the book where the couple is building towards uh, the secondary post-wedding consummation, post-conflict consummation after that brief period of separation. 
Uh, he's been speaking to her primarily, celebrating her body these last two weeks, if you've been here for that. But now she's speaking and inviting him to be with her in the villages and the fields and the gardens. The descriptions of mandrakes here uh, being an aphrodisiac. And elsewhere in the book, if you've seen or remember the use of raisins, that's another, uh, and even the scent of apples. There's different types of aphrodisiacs uh, in the ancient world, some of which may be still today, but in the ancient world were common aphrodisiacs. In fact, I was just joking with one of our elders earlier today that if you just close your eyes and kind of point to a random word in the book, you're probably pointing at an aphrodisiac, probably, because they're just everywhere, you know. Pick your, uh, pick your favorite. But anyway, uh, that's mixed with the presence here in this, in this passage today of choice fruits uh, helped to paint a picture that's, that suggests that sex is about to occur between the couple. She's longing for privacy with him, hence the running away to fields and villages, presumably away from the city, which we'll talk more about today. It's a big theme in the book. And in uh, 8.1, uh, you know, when she says, I wish you were like a brother, uh, public displays of affection were forbidden in that culture, uh, except those of family. So when she says, I wish you were like a brother, she, she's saying, I wish I didn't have to wait to be alone with you to kiss you. So it's this poetic, not actually wishing that he was, he was her brother, but like a brother that she could just not have to wait to kiss him. So that's what's going on, just to be clear, in verse 1. But longing for that uh, privacy, nonetheless, through that, out in the fields. And then she closes with yet another call in the bottom here to her single friends to be patient in their own relationships and to understand that longing for and waiting for sex is a good thing and to not force that into existence. This is a common little preaching moment here uh, for, the, uh, for the woman who speaks a lot at various points throughout the book to her single friends who are called the daughters of Jerusalem, almost like she's had this interaction a lot with him and then she kind of turns to the camera a bit, you know, and says this one thing. Then kind of goes back, you know, and speaks to him some more. But this is a one re- repeated thing where she says, do you see what's happening here? How God is blessing engagement and waiting. How, how it's not about instant gratification, but delayed gratification. And this is, and this in, of course, in context here then is what he's saying is, is poetically wait to have, and she's saying wait to have sex until marriage. That's God's design. And there's many reasons for this, all of which, we just can't go into today because we have elsewhere and a different focus for today. But if you want to talk to us about that more, I point you back to our sermons online. We talked a lot more about that. But in a nutshell, she's just saying that God is telling a story through engagement and delayed gratification and waiting. It's okay to wait. We talk about something that's very you know, anti-American or just kind of anti-human, I guess, uh, in, in humanistic in one sense. It, it, but it is biblical and it is at the heart of God is that it's okay to wait. That's all right. And waiting is actually a good thing. It's, uh, Bill, it's being impatient is called sin, you know, elsewhere in the scriptures for certain reasons. And waiting on God, waiting for answers to prayer, waiting for salvation, waiting for sex. Uh, it, all those kind of fall underneath the same idea biblically. And so uh, part of what's being preached to us in this book is to uh, honor uh, the times in between or honor engagements or honor uh, waiting and honor God's timing. So, but anyway... Brief summary on that, and again, a lot more to say there, uh, but um, if you haven't been here, that has come up uh, two or three other times in the book, and so we talked about it more then. All right, so that's a brief summary, though, kind of on a physical, human level of what's going on, a more accessible, you know, kind of, this is what's going on level. But as we dig deeper, remember that this is not just about the human, it's about the divine. So if, as we ask that question, how is this telling us more about salvation, more about God, more about the cross, more about what salvation is not? 
uh, we ask those questions, we uh, get a lot more out of this. So we're going to do that. Uh, the divine angle here, uh, and I kind of subtitled this, is a, a proper bride-like perspective on salvation. A proper bride-like perspective on salvation. So when, when we apply this spiritually, uh, this woman here, Solomon's wife, becomes a picture of a person who really understands salvation well. And at first glance, you're like, well, what in the world does that mean? And how can that be? And I don't get it. I get it. I don't get it either. So I get that. But um, as we dig deeper, we see that she is a picture poetically of someone who understands principles of faith and waiting and really understands the gospel and what it means to be close to the Lord uh, in his saving kinds of ways. So we'll unpack that in a minute. But I think she'd be like one of those people, if you've read the gospel accounts in the New Testament, there are these people sometimes that Jesus comes across and they're a lot of times Jewish or non-Jewish people. They're people that you know, shouldn't understand these types of mysteries, but Jesus celebrates their faith. You know, he says things like, actually the, the narrators or the authors of these gospels, like Mark or whoever will kind of comment on the side and say, and Jesus stood in amazement of the Syrophoenician woman's faith or the, the, the Gentile centurion's faith. He stood in amazement and said, I have not seen this type of faith in Israel, and I'm seeing it in these Gentile, non-Jewish individuals. I think this woman would fit in that category. Like if she was alive in Jesus' day, I think Jesus would, would celebrate her, stand in amazement of these types of mysteries here that she's grasping that are deep and profound. Or you could say the Solomon is grasping because he's the author of all this, but whatever the case, she is an example here in her faith, in the type of mysterious faith that she has here to, uh, to follow. The question is, of course, in what sense? How are we seeing this displayed symbolically and poetically? I have two big things today. There's a lot going on, but two main kind of mountaintop things we're going to look at. One is a review from a few weeks ago, uh, but a lot of you weren't here, and, um, or if you were, it'll be just good to review. Uh, the second builds on it, because uh, it's new language that's employed that uh, builds on the same idea that is a repeated theme that uh, we'll, we'll talk about that, that does convey, I think, in a very special manner that you don't really see anywhere else in the scriptures in this exact type of way. Uh, what salvation really uh, is, is all about. So let's review uh, the first uh, thing. Actually, in verse 11, we're going to spin off verse 11 here. So uh, it says, let us go. She says to, to him, come, my beloved, let us go out into the fields and the villages. And after this, she talks about the vineyards, so the gardens as well. The, the idea of garden, not explicitly here, but vineyards are. Uh, have that in mind as well as we read, that gardens and villages and fields are this primary location of love and sex uh, in uh, the storyline. So just to review then, uh, in going off that, this might be brand new to you too if you're new to the Bible, but understand that location is important theologically. Not all the times in the same level. Sometimes it is inconsequential, but a lot of times it's not inconsequential. Location is a very important idea uh, narratively. And so a very important uh, theme here that God is choosing to convey that he's choosing a certain place to manifest his presence and even outside of song, just big picture stuff here. He chooses certain places to manifest his presence and contrasting places to symbolize absence or cursing. He'll do that a lot by adding kind of pairs of things. And a lot of times those are two different locations or, uh, or whatnot. And so that, and that's the case here in, in the book. And this happens both in obvious and in subtle ways, but it, it is a repeated idea here that's really important to get. And remember that too, by the way. When you see something repeated in the Bible, uh, read it more. <laughs> read it harder. Uh, pay closer attention to what's being said because God doesn't make mistakes and write things too much. 
We, we can't conclude that, right? God is more intentional than that. He's obviously not making errors in the book. But what he is doing is writing a really, really, really good story, and all good stories have repetition. There's no such thing as a book, a great work of literary genius out there that does not repeat things in a literary device kind of manner. So God is no exception here. He's writing repetition in to basically say, here's the idea again, but also simultaneously, here's a big flashing sign that says, this is important. Don't miss it. You know, it's kind of like um, uh, Aletha and I, or any parent, if you're a parent, you might really uh, be able to resonate with this, but it's kind of like saying to your kids, I love you, and those moments where you can tell they just don't hear it, they don't understand it, like they didn't quite get it, you know, and as a parent, those are hard moments, like you don't, in a good way, that's bothersome, you know, because you're like, I want them to, to hear that my love is deep, it's like cosmic, you know, we have this phrase in our house where we say, I'll say to Jane, because this works for her, I don't think it does for Emmett for some reason, but I'll say to Jane, our eight-year-old, that my love for you is, is big, it's to the universe and, and beyond and, and, and further and back and further. Or some version of that. Silly, I know. But that's, anyway, which kind of convey the large scope and size of my love. And I'll say that and she'll just be like, oh, a bird out the window or, you know, her screen or whatever it is. She won't hear it. And that's, it, it hurts me that she doesn't hear it. And so I'll try to get her right in the eyes and say, no, you have to hear this. I think it's the same here with how God is writing, writing these types of things. He's just writing the story of Scripture is, He's saying, I love you in one way, and we don't hear it, and so he says it again in a different way, or maybe the exact same way, and we have to hear it and say, this is especially, this is pronounced in the Bible for a reason. So resist the temptation to say, oh, I've read this before, let's go on to new things. Um, God is not really about new things anymore. He's already done the newest thing that's ever arisen in the world, which we'll come to later, and that is the cross. He's God of repetition. And so uh, if we're not, we run the risk of really missing what he's trying to say and actually being Christ-like in our, in our spirituality if we're not that way. So, okay, with that said, though, again, location's important theologically. So the question is, how does the Song of Solomon pick up on this theme over and over again? And uh, some of you, a lot of you probably have noticed this. We've talked about it, but if you haven't, understand that the Song of Solomon is a tale of two locations, in fact, if you want to summarize it to yourself or people who are you're, you're teaching or your kids or friends or people that are brand new to the Bible, whatever the case is, it's one great way to summarize the whole book is to say that, that this is the case, that the Song of Solomon is a tale of two locations. It is a place of, a place of cursing or absence, which is the city, and a place of blessing or presence, which is the fields, villages, and the gardens. Constantly in this book, you're seeing these two things butt heads and are juxtaposed to the point where uh, the woman at one point in the Bible is harmed in the city physically, even borderline raped until she find, by other individuals before she finds her husband back in these outer regions called fields, villages, gardens, or vineyards. And so uh, by doing that then, one of the, the, again, the mantras of the book is this. Love is found outside the city. Love is found outside the city. If you want to summarize Song of Solomon, there's probably other ways to do it for sure that are equally as important. I'm not saying this is the only thing. But if you're summarizing it to yourself uh, or in your mind right now or other people in the future, uh, have that as one of the mantras and, and the subtitles of the book. Love is found outside the city in the fields and the villages. Now, understand, this is not a, literal statement on what God thinks of cities. God loves cities. 
uh, he's all about this city. And, and a lot of times, actually, in the Bible, cities are places of blessing. So there's different ways to read this. We have to be, you know, okay with allowing this literary tension to exist in our reading of especially Old Testament narrative and New Testament narrative, uh, but also poetry, maybe especially, that it's not trying to be the say-all, end-all with these themes, but be one aspect on these biblical symbols of, in this case, cities and, and fields, and, or non-city, contrasting with city, non-city-like uh, places juxtaposed. So God loves them. But what this really has to do then is we just kind of hang out in Song of Solomon for a minute. It has to do more with the, what this city represents. And remember, if you've been here, in the Bible's case, we talked about this for a couple of weeks now, the, the city, and this is any city, this is the city of cities in the, in the Old Testament perspective kind of way, Jerusalem, represents the Old Testament as a whole. Not just the region, but the Old Testament. So be kind of like today we would say a capital of a country kind of represents the whole country in a sense. Maybe socio-politically or otherwise there's, it's a large city and they kind of you know, send out resources to the outer regions or whatever, but it's representative. So it might be even kind of synonymous with same country and capital city. Those just might go hand in hand. It's similar in the Old Testament, but heightened because Jerusalem doesn't just mean Israel. It represents allegorically all the Old Testament and with it this law that God gave, like the Ten Commandments, to his people. In one place we get this elsewhere to help us, kind of gives permission for us to read it this way, though there's many places to look, is in the New Testament, actually, in Galatians 4, 21 to 31, where Paul says there, the Apostle Paul, writing to the church about a variety of things, that the, the things aren't the point. I just want you to see here. But he says, the city, Jerusalem, corresponds, uses that word, corresponds to Mount Sinai, which is a mountain where God met Moses and his people in the Old Testament and gave them laws to keep, stipulations that, that mediated his relationship with them. It was a conditional covenant. Do this and live. Uh, don't do this and die and be cursed. So basically what Paul is saying here is in one way to look at Jerusalem then is to see it as, he says present-day Jerusalem, but it's bigger than that, is to see it as a picture of this type of way God's connecting with people, a commandment-keeping kind of covenant, a conditional covenant, and more broadly speaking, just, uh, just the law. So as we kind of plug in those variables to this greater equation, uh, the, the fact that, that, going back to Song of Solomon, she, Solomon's wife, when she's separated from him, not only does not find her husband in the city at various points throughout the, the poem, but is at one point beat up there in chapter 5, verse 7 by these watchmen on the wall, which we talked about a few weeks ago, shows us that salvation cannot be found in the law. Salvation and love, relatedly, synonymous terms basically, ultimate love, divine love from God is not found in what this, the city or what the city represents allegorically, which is, which is the law or commandment keeping. The Bible says elsewhere in 2 Corinthians, the law kills us but the Spirit gives life. But love and salvation, back in Song of Solomon, is found somewhere else, right? And where's, where does it constantly go back to? It's not the city, but it is where Solomon is, right? In the fields, in the gardens, in these, in these outer areas outside the city proper, the fields, the villages, the vineyards, just being where King Solomon is. It's, it's not this inconsequential, random thing that she never finds Solomon in the city, which is kind of odd because he's a king. Like he should be there, right, in one sense. But the fact that he's not ever in this city, but always in these outer regions where love and closeness and friendship and sex happen for the couple, always outside there, screams something foggy but poetically, theologically significant 
nonetheless, and that is love is not found in the law. It is found in the Solomon, or as we would say, reading back into this from a New Testament side of things, the Christ, our ultimate Solomon, our ultimate king who blesses us with his presence and dies for our sins and is just with us. It's a very simple idea, but the, the, and we'll move to this here in a second, but the New Testament is all about God moving towards us and just being with us because he dies for our sins and takes away that barrier. Not about saying, do this and you will live. The Old Testament is do this and you will live. The New Testament is just believe in this and trust. Call on the name of the Lord, the Bible says. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That is a, a new aspect uh, to the, the story, which, again, will come up. Just in chart form here, which you guys, oh, maybe you've already read this. That's okay. Uh, on the left side here, the city then uh, are associated with the watchmen on the wall who harm her and who at least convey the absence of Solomon, and it represents Old Testament law. On the right, the fields, gardens, villages, vineyards, the primary four things, but in today's uh, case, fields and villages uh, represent where, that's where Solomon is in the book. That's where love occurs, where sex occurs, where communion occurs, and it represents an alternate locale of salvation, and that is grace. That's just being with Christ where he is and being wedded, marital love, which is still kind of foggy, right? At this point in the story, if you didn't know the end, you'd say, okay, well, how does that work? Now, how, how are we going to be married to a king? Or if this is about God and us, how are we wedded to God? And we have to go elsewhere to, to get there, but God is very clear that when I send my son to die for your sins and you believe, I marry you. I become one flesh, spiritually speaking. I become one spirit, one flesh with you. Using sexual language, as we said in the series, sexual language is used to convey the relationship that you, if you're a Christian, have with God. Is that crazy? <laughs> yeah, intercourse language. What, like a husband and wife become one flesh, so is that depict how close God is, how he enters us with his spirit and never leaves. It, it, it's it's a, not a perfect, not a literal one-to-one -one correlation, obviously. It's a metaphor, but it depicts it. And God says, you want to know what it's like? Well, look at really good sex happening in a marriage. That's kind of like what salvation is like, in a way, in its own special, unique way. It's crazy, right? Mysterious. Why would he do that? It's nuts! But he does. So, um, anyway. And actually, to spin off on this right side here, what, part of the reason why I'm doing this today, by the way, you guys, is to repeat, because the Bible does, and to kind of drive these things, these are really hard things to understand, so spending more time in it. But also, because this passage gives one unique word we haven't seen yet in this whole matter, and that is villages. Villages has not come up yet. Uh, actually, I don't think it does. Well, if it did, it's insignificant. It's still the idea is there. This is a pronounced thing here, though, that villages are, are part of where she's inviting him away to. And so when we, when we think about the theme of villages and ask, well, where else does that occur? maybe specifically as it relates to Christ, in the Bible, it reminds us that Jesus spent a lot of time ministering in, uh, quote, villages. Villages are mentioned a lot in relation to his ministry, like one of the many places in Matthew 9 says, and Jesus went throughout all the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And as I say here, just in the parentheticals, uh, if you weren't aware of this, or just remember if you were, Jesus spends most of his life in his ministry not in the city, right? Not in Jerusalem, but in Galilee, which is a northern region. So if this is the Jordan River, you have Galilee up here, and you know, Samaria and Judea down here, which is where Jerusalem is. 
He spends a vast majority of his time up in these kind of outer region village areas where these outcasts live, and it's not very significant of a place, but he's healing, he's delivering demonized, he's performing all kinds of miracles, every disease, every affliction, all kinds of teaching with authority, bringing and ushering in the kingdom of God outside and quite far away from the city. That's not insignificant. That it's, it's helping tell this same story that the Song of Solomon is trying to do as well by showing us that salvation is found elsewhere than city slash law, but rather in what Christ is doing here by um, ministering in a Galilean region kind of way. And actually, later in his ministry, he does eventually go to Jerusalem, but only for a week. Remember uh, that, uh, that day of entrance into the city, the Palm Sunday? It's only a week, actually less than that. Uh, it's about five days before his death. He dies. Um, but when he does go, it's super interesting. If these are small narrative things, but man, they're so cool. Is, is the way, remember the way he enters the city? It's with palm branches flying, kind of basic, basically effective flags waving. The, the Jews are so excited that he's here. It's, he's entering the city. It's this epicenter of spiritual and political life for the people. And they're thinking, well, it's kind of like a general, like we would say, kind of marching in you know, to, to Washington, D.C., you know, on the, on the court, in the courts there and just saying, getting ready to kind of rally the troops and go to fight a, a huge war for America or something. It'd be kind of like that. But it says after he does that, after this triumphal entry right in the back of a colt, do you remember what it says? It says this very, it's like the most anticlimactic thing you can imagine. It says, well, he looked around the city a bit, thought, oh, it's a pretty amazing city. Checked his watch and, and went home. <laughs> you know, it's like, What? No, this is the moment, right? This is where you're supposed to kind of take charge and really reveal your, this is why you came. You're here for the people to save and to, to destroy the Romans and to really take charge. But no, he just kind of looks around the city for a bit and heads outside again. Goes to Bethany, the smaller village outside the city for the night. And then he comes in the next day and rebukes the city and the temple inside it. Curses it because it's not bearing fruit. It's, in other words, it's not working. There's no righteousness or goodness flowing from like a river from the hearts of the Jews. And so the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, with all of its stipulations and, and promises built on conditionality, the people do, do this and you will live, not working. So he curses it. And so you have that anticlimactic piece with, well, first of all, pretty much entirely in Galilee the whole time, only five days in Jerusalem, anticlimactic entrance, later curses it. All of this symbolizes how Jesus was coming to offer a new, distinctly unique way of sell a new covenant, a new testament, one typified in his non-city-like Galilean ministry, but ultimately wrapped up in his death and resurrection, which, again, you can probably guess if you haven't already, which again occur where? Outside the city, right? Where does Jesus die? Yeah, in the city or outside? What's the Bible careful to note? Inside or outside the city? Again, you can guess from all we've been saying, it's, it's, it's definitely outside the city. You might think, well, inconsequential, who cares? No, actually, we should care. God cares. God's telling a story here, and it's a very important he dies in a different place in the city because of what the city represents, spiritually, symbolically, and in Song's case, poetically. Here's a few examples. Uh, John 19, 20 it's clear to say Jesus was crucified uh, near the city, but not in the city. John 19, 41, now in the place where he was crucified there was a garden. Again, Song of Solomon imagery, we'll come back to that. And in Hebrews 13, maybe the clearest, Jesus was also suffered outside the gate. 
in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp. And so just a picture here of, of the city, for you visual uh, peeps. Can't, I know you can't read that. I can't read that from here. But on the bottom is, circled in red, is Golgotha or Calvary, the place of the skull where Jesus died. We don't know exactly where it was, but we know it was from these verses outside the city. So you can see distinctly here the city walls and the temple inside their temple courts, but clearly outside the, in this lesser kind of insignificant place in a garden, uh, Jesus was crucified among criminals for the salvation of the world. So again, let me just say this again. Location here is huge, huge, not inconsequential. Because of what's happening here, his blood does not scream to us, do more, people. Do this and you will live. That's old, old covenant way of thinking. His blood screams, it is finished, right? In other words, I did something for you. I accomplished salvation for you. Because he didn't die in the city, we can't blend these two things together. They're not like this. We pull them apart. There's a wall between the temple and where Jesus died for a distinct reason. And the invitation to go to him there, right, outside the camp. In other words, again, this, we're speaking symbolically here, right, but just to make sure these dots are connected. In other words, he did not die to, to eventually tell you to try harder religiously. You know, he didn't, he didn't die. His blood doesn't scream condemnation for you and me. It screams freedom. He's, he's not dying amidst the city to say, well, I'm dying to kind of help you keep the law, or I'm dying to wash half your sins away, but here's the bargain. The rest is up to you. See, if he died in the city walls, we might come to that symbolic conclusion. We might say, well, what's the city represent? It represents law. Well, he's dying amidst the law, so he's kind of adding to it, right? But he didn't. He died outside to show it was a completely different way, a completely new system. The first pointed to the second. And in that sense, Christ was all about the Old Testament because it's a book about him. But it was a distinctly different covenant built on different, different promises. So when she says then, and going back to Song of Solomon, let us go out to these places in verse uh, 11. Let us go out into the fields and the villages. There's a similar invitation to Hebrews 13 in the New Testament. Let us go to him, the ultimate Solomon, outside the gate. Let's move from this place of law, this Old Testament way of living that was, God was present speaking to us there, but always hearkening, beckoning us to go past it, to just have faith and to trust in him, to do everything on his own. And not people, the people not on, their, not on their strength, move outside to go to grace. So you actually leave the place, do you see? You don't look at it from the wall. You actually leave the place entirely. This is the invitation of the Bible. Go out to the gardens with King Solomon and, and love him in a Song of Solomon imagery uh, way. And then here in a more straightforward kind of way, let's go to him outside the gate spiritually. So there, there's a preaching moment here. We can't just understand the concepts. We actually have to do something. It confronts us. We have to do something with that. Where are, where are we going to go because of this truth? Because of the cross, what are we going to do about it? Are we going to go out to him or not? Because you will not find him in the figurative city. In other words, in your moral effort before him. That's not where you find God and being a good person. Uh, good people were kept away from Jesus throughout his ministry. Uh, it was the really bad people who were close to him. So where are you going to go? He died outside, not inside, in a garden, in a vineyard like Solomon and his wife go to 
so we have to make sure these are clear, distinct elements or else we'll confuse the matter and blend deeds and works uh, with belief. <laughs> also note here that, um, and I'll, you know, we have two weeks left, so if, if you're if you don't want to know the end, just plug your ears. I'm going to wreck the, I'm going to wreck the end for you. Uh, it's pretty much the same stuff all the way through chapter 8. But um, it, basically what happens is they stay here. They never go back to the city in the book. Again, shocking that this is the king of Israel and that's not mentioned. This should be weird for us. It should be, if you're an Israelite in the Old Testament and you're reading these things, you're saying, what in the world are they doing out here for so long? Why don't, why aren't they taking up residence, clearly poetically, in the city? What's going on? So it would be a, a strange, symbolic, poetic thing happening here, but it would make you kind of scratch your head and say, and say it's not the old way. Is there some new fruit here, which we'll come to in a second, uh, going on? So they never go back to the city. In the same way, Christians don't go back to the law after we're saved. We're not saved, and then God says, here's the bargain. I save you, but now it's up to you to maintain my love by being a good person. Very common, very common American evangelical heresy right there, is Jesus saves, he brings us thus far, but then the bargain is, you keep the law as best as you can to kind of maintain my my covenantal blessing and love over your life. Heresy, untrue, outside the city, right? Not inside. If you died inside the city, you could make that claim. Religion, works, blending blood with how great of a person you are. That's where you get. But since he's outside, look look at where we're going you see the movement the Bible is calling us to? The difference is incredible news. We're saved by grace, not by works. This is where God, this is how God has loved you and me. Look at that. Have you, have you never heard? Maybe some of you haven't. Have you not seen these mysteries? This is what the scriptures are calling us to and displaying. God's saying, this is how I'm loving you. I'm doing it all. It's actually occurred. God died for you. God died for you. And God died for me. He loved us in that, in that way. Praise be to God. So like, like the couple never goes back to the city, Christians don't get washed in the, in the shower of Christ's blood at the cross and then go back in the city walls and kind of putz around religiously. That, that's what We do that. We all avert to that. But that's not what God has for you. That's something way better for you. Way more freeing. Way more ending at the cross and not adding to it. It'd actually be like a a couple after they get married saying, let's go back to being engaged. That'd be so much fun. You know, like, no couple ever says that. That's just silly, right? It's just ridiculous. Or let's go back to being friends. Like, what? Like, no. I know that that maybe that happens in some marriages, sadly, where people are more roommates than they are lovers. But that's that's not a good thing. That's just, if that happens, that's something to remedy and pray through and work on in your marriage. Not to, like, say, well, this just happens. No. That's not the story. It's the, same, it's the same because marriage is about God. That's not the story he's trying to tell through marriage. He's trying to say, no, love gets better. And you move on from engagement and never go back. We loved it. Aletha and I loved our engagement. And we've got pictures that testify to it. And, well, testify. I don't know why I'm saying it that way. To prove we're married, whatever. It's uh, to, to tell that story. And uh, our wedding day will be etched in our memory. We got married in this building. And I was standing right here. And be uh, etched in our memory forever. But we don't want to go back. I mean, as as great as that day was, in the same way, when you move on from self-righteousness, you move on from self-justification, you move on from religion, you move on from immaturity and anticipation, you you move, move on from waiting, 
to all these greater things, better things that, that he has for us, these new things. And that's where I want to move now to, to just add a couple, of word, a couple of concepts here to this that are new as we talk about the song. Different angle slightly, but same idea. And that's from verse 13. Uh, it says, uh, she says, beside our doors are, are all choice fruits. This is the key phrase, new as well as old, which I have laid up for you, O my beloved. So, again, she, she's obviously speaking physically and sensually here, inviting her husband to have sex, but she's also speaking beyond herself, like it's so common in the Bible, where people say something and don't realize that they're saying something more profound than they're actually saying. They're kind of like prophesying without realizing it. You see that happen a lot in the Bible where they're writing something down or saying something and God's behind saying, oh, but I'm really saying this through, through what you're saying. You know, you don't realize it, but I'm really saying this. You know, through, it's the same thing here. She's speaking beyond herself. She's not realizing what she's saying by saying new as well as old fruits because the Bible speaks about these things many places elsewhere too that uh, give us more clear indication of what's being hinted at and whispered in, uh, in the story. So, but fruits for her are representative of parts of their relationship. So on the human side of things, relationships are always changing, right? I mean, this is, this is beyond marriage. It's like friendships change, all kinds of relationships change, but in, in the marriage, they change too. But they change by being, even though they're being built on the old, unchangeable covenant of marriage at the same time, right? So there's old and new aspects to all relationships. There, there's the new, or there's the, there's the old, like, oh, this is, this is our, our past, our history. But then, like, in the present, things change. Our, our personalities tweak a bit, maybe, or we get different hobbies or different, like, goals or ambitions as one of us does, and the other kind of person comes along, or we move, or, you know, things just, we get more mature, maybe less mature, whatever it is, and we change a little bit. Uh, you know, I mean, even, even just in my marriage, Aletha and I say this a lot, where we, uh, we're married 13 years, but we knew each other for, a, um, well, six months dating, and then six months engaged, so one year. And we just look back and say, we thought we knew each other pretty well. And we look back and say, we barely knew each other. Like, what were we thinking? You know, it was like, we barely, barely knew each other. But God's good. Like, he just, I mean, I feel like we kind of, in a good way, backed into that and just like rejoiced. Praise God that worked out, you know. But, because it could, might not have, but, um, but it did, by God's grace. And, and I thought a lot of people have those, those stories, right, where you just meet someone quick and, and that's great. But you don't really know your spouse that well early on. You get to know them a lot better, right, as, as you go forward in uh, your relationship. So, um, so really, it, it's the same thing that on, on the divine side uh, as well. The, the idea that love ages well. And, and not all the time. And marriages will have, uh, you know, rough seasons, of course. But um, in healthy marriages, at least, it's kind of like a stock market graph, you know. It goes up eventually, but you have kind of down, downslides. Love ages well. It's the same with the, the divine side of things, uh, the biblical storyline. God's relationship with his people is built on his faithfulness the entire time, but the stipulations of the covenants change in a way that helps tell that story. As we've been saying from law to grace, old to new, Old Testament, Old Covenant to New Testament, New Covenant. And so Jesus speaks in these terms as well. In uh, Matthew 13, 52, he says, uh, Therefore, it's a parable, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of God is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. And in Matthew 9, 17, he talks about the kingdom of God being like new wine that is put into new wineskins. And so, I know, Captain Obvious here, but 
you, you can't have new things without old things, right? Or else there's no such thing as the new thing. So you've got to have a contrasting idea. There's, there's new wine and old wine. There's new wineskins and old wineskins. There's just new and old. And God's the God of both, but he's progressing from the former, the first, uh, to, to the other. His promises, his prophecies, his laws, he's, he's doing those kinds of things in the world to only fulfill them later and replace them uh, through, his, through his son. He's the new way. And actually here in uh, chapter 9, I didn't, this is just a verse, but in context, he's actually talking about fasting. Because there's people who look at his disciples and say, Jesus, why aren't you and your, your friends, these disciples, fasting from food like the rest of us? And his answer is, because we're at a wedding. So very song of song-like imagery again, just to bring this back. He's saying, I'm the bridegroom and I'm here. And, and I'm marrying sinners to myself. Why would we mourn? It's like going to a wedding and saying, oh, this is sad, and I don't want to eat the, the, the food, and oh, the cake. Are you kidding? Who likes cake? And blah, blah, blah. You know, that'd be like that. These people are like focused on, oh, why aren't you fasting? And Jesus says, I am here. Right? You see the difference? The old to new? You're keeping all these little things, and you're not keeping the blah, blah, blah. And Jesus is saying, I'm the new thing. I'm the new wine. I'm the new way God is working. You're so stuck in this city looking at all these little stipulations and condemning people in your religiosity, Pharisees, or these religious rulers who are saying all this kind of stuff. And Jesus is saying, I'm fulfilling all of that. I'm bringing to an end things that were for a while. Placeholding, typifying, pointing, foreshadowing. But now that I'm here, dance, smile, be free, rejoice. I'm saving you from your sin, and I'm doing all of it. See how happy that is? And how not happy it is to say, I'm kind of saving you, but you also need to fast and, and mourn and kind of self-macerate to kind of atone for your own sins for a while, and maybe I'll let you in a little bit later on. What a, what a damning theology that is, right? How mournful. If that's where people are, yeah, you should fast, you know? Be sad, because you have no idea where you're headed. No idea. But Jesus says, I love you. I, I've died for your sins. Do you believe it? He holds it out. He says, this is, the, this is the way in. It's me. Intoxicate yourself with the gospel of my wine, the wine of my gospel, the, the good news of, of my wedding. I'm here. So in context then, that's what he's saying. The same idea. Wedding imagery is employed to say the time of fasting is over. Christians shouldn't really fast that much. And maybe some of you do, and it's not like you're sinning to do that. It's never commanded in the New Testament, fasting. Uh, we're, we're at a wedding. We have been for 2,000 years. Uh, why, would we, why would we fast and mourn? And why would, why would we not feast? Why would we not celebrate and dance and smile? Our God reigns. He rules. He loves. He's stronger than the worst of our sins. He's destroyed them. The war is over, you know? It's like the end of a war and kind of going back to living as though it's still going on. No, the war is over. Why are we living as though? So anyway, that's a different sermon, but I got to bring it back here. So in Song 7, uh, going back to Song, the woman here, Solomon's wife, is a picture of someone who is trained for the kingdom, to use these words in Matthew. Understanding that old is good, but new is much better. That there is a difference, not just one kind of fruit, that there's a difference between the two. Uh, again, with Aletha, engagement was a wonderful time for us. We loved it, but why in the world would we want to go back to that? It was a lesser time in our relationship. Really great. 
but a lesser time. Uh, clearly, marriage is always, always better than engagement. Um, being far apart is lesser than being one flesh, right? And these are kind of obvious things, but it's, it's the same spiritually as well. The Old Testament law was engagement. It was preparatory. It was pointing to Jesus, but it was mourning. It was waiting. But the New Testament's built on better things, things that pertain to Christ and his blood. Hebrews 8 gets at this uh, when it says, um, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenants he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. The first testament is faulty. It doesn't mean you stop reading it. It means it's a book about Christ in its own way. But it is not on the same level as the New Testament. It just isn't. There's things in there we don't keep. There are things that have been abrogated. There are things that have been wrapped up in the finish line that is Christ. And we, we read them as though they're part of the engagement, part of the preparation, but not as the ultimate. So don't go back to being engaged to God. Be wedded to him. Don't go back to law. Go, go run outside the city to grace and be married to your king forever and ever and ever and shower in his blood. Is the encouragement here in context for this is a New Testament book, so written to the church, who's forgetting those things like we all do, like I do all the time. I hate when I forget this stuff. All the time, forget this stuff. Saying, lay it down, lay down your self-righteousness and walk outside the city and, and bask in his blood. Just be with him. It's possible now. So a few questions then to wrap up here, and I'll use the language of the passages to drive this home. The first is, obviously, so are we like Solomon's wife here? Again, a great poetic, prophetic picture of faithfulness and understanding salvation in the gospel, the mystery of it beforehand really well. Are we going to him outside the city like she did? Are we a scribe trained for the kingdom, like Jesus teaches, knowing the difference between old and new? Are we intoxicating ourselves on the new wine of the gospel or settling for old fruit? I just to push this metaphor one, one step further, uh, and I kind of got at this, but it, it is, this is one of the scariest things too, because man, we, I do this all the time. It's possible to look at Jesus crucified from the vantage point of the city. That, that, that could have been done when Jesus died. You could have been in the city if you're up high enough and looked out and saw these crucifixions happening. But it's possible to see it, to know it, to somehow say, acknowledge it's happening, but never run out to him. And that is, I think, one of the cancers of the church. It's always been there. That Christ is more powerful then. He's got the cure, no question. But it's one of these heretical cancers that is just alive in the church where we, you know, we think Christ is good, but not ultimate. We want to add to him. And... Uh, so the, the call then is to not do that, of course. Uh, the call is to go out and to make him not just ultimate, but only. So there's another question for you. Is Jesus Christ just ultimate, or is he your, your one and only, as the Bible says elsewhere in the Gospel of John? Is he it, or just part? And we see this play out in our lives as well. You know, I think there's something that needs to be distinctly different about us as Christians than other religious people. It's come up already, but I, I even think like in our stories of speaking of marriage, you know, like, like a child grows up and, and moves out of his house and meets someone in a different city and gets married there and gets a home there and lives happily ever after there in a distinctly different setting than their upbringing. 
right? We all go through this. This is all of our storyline. If you've been married, I guess, even if you're not, if you just move out of your house, but let's just take a marriage setting. That's what happens, right? I mean, if people live in their parents' house, I know there's places for that at times, but it's never ideal, right? Living in your mom's basement or something. You always want to get out. Like you're, there's different locations there. It's the same with God. You know, like we, we move on from the former to the latter, and there's different locations in the Bible that help tell that story. Like a man leaves his father and mother and clings to his wife in the same way we leave the law and cling to Christ. There's movement, there's difference that, that happens there, and we have to have that. And, and one of the things that, you know, as we're doing this, as Christ becomes our one and only, as we start to move away from thinking, because maybe some of you are there, like fasting is, um, for example, just a, one small example, but fasting from food is like one of the most important things I do as a Christian. And I, maybe you even think you have to as a believer, and you might look down on people for not. Uh, this is an example of something that's just untrue, but something that you need to grow, kind of grow up from and grow up, up and away from and be in a different location spiritually from. Uh, as we do that, it's, it's interesting, though, because people that make Christ their one and only, in the gospel their one and only, look really foolish to the world a lot of times, uh, even to the church. They look simple. They, look, they don't look that spiritual. I'm like, well, why aren't you, like the, like the Pharisees say, why aren't, why aren't you fasting? Why aren't you kind of doing your own kind of self-maceration? Why aren't you looking at keeping, why aren't you keeping Sabbaths? Why aren't you, you know, uh, blogging really well? I don't, whatever it is. You know, it could be a lot of things, but why aren't you doing that? And why don't you, like, write well? Or why don't you have this or that, this ministry? Or, and, you know, for, for a mature Christian, they're, they're looking at that saying, well, why would I have to? Like, why, why is that really important? I have everything I need. But for the world, it looks, you know, why don't you speak in tongues? It looks just very, very different, right? It looks like, and we can confuse the matter and say, well, this is the mature person. Look how outwardly spiritual they are. This is the elementary school Christian over here. But what Christ does is completely flip them around. The, the, the child, immature Christian are ones that uphold these types of things. Who think you have to do, we're all about, man, look at me, I'm, like Christ says in the Sermon on the Mount, I'm washing my hands and my face so people know I've been fasting and I'm, I'm giving so much and I'm, blah, blah, I'm doing all this stuff. And, and that's actually the less, they might be saved still, but it's the less mature. The mature Christian kind of jettisons it all and, and goes outside the walls, outside law completely, and just constantly washes themselves in the blood of Jesus. And from there flow all good works because he gives them. We're compelled by his, by his love and grace. Colossians 2 gets at this, uh, and I'll end with this. Uh, these, so talking about laws, uh, Sabbath-keeping and dietary laws, food laws of the Old Testament, is something the early church was wrestling with. A lot of the early Christians were Jews, of course, and as Gentiles were being saved, they're trying to figure this whole thing out. What Old Testament laws do we still keep and what do we not and all that. But here the Apostle Paul says, Sabbath-keeping, dietary laws, other things you could plug in there, have indeed an appearance of wisdom, in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. They will not stop you from sinning. You have to go somewhere else. You will not, your life will not change if the center of your spirituality is keeping the Sabbath, keeping the Ten Commandments, trying hard to be a lover of people. You know, there's no good news, there's no gospel, trying hard to fast. There's no gospel in that. You have to go away from that to a place where you're looking at a, at a bloody body on a cross, macerated beyond recognition, and saying, my God is in him. That's my God. 
and he's doing that for me. And if, if the degree to which you understand that and, and bask in that is the degree to which you will be a more mature Christian. There is nothing to add to it. He does all of it or he does nothing for you. You can't just take 50% of that and say, well, it's all or nothing with Jesus. Either he's your everything or he's your nothing. Uh, he didn't leave you this middle ground to kind of dabble around in. You're, you're not going to sit in the wall and look at him in the city. You're either going to move outside the city or you're going to stay in the city and look at him or just stay in the city altogether and not care about him. But you're either outside the city or you're not. You're, you're in the gardens, showering in his blood, being clean from your sins, or you're back in the city being self-righteous. And that's where we all are, right? Until God calls us, beckons us out from the tomb of that city, um, we're all there, um, stuck, dead, full of ourselves. And then Christ says, come to me. And I know you're weary, but, but I'll save you. Let's pray. God, thank you for the gospel in song, five, uh, song uh, 7 and 8. <clears throat> thank you for whispering to us there and shouting to us elsewhere. But the message is still the same over and over and over again. Saved by God's grace through Jesus Christ as a gift. Not from ourselves, so that none may boast. Not from works of righteousness. Um, not from anything that we do and can add to you. Uh, forgive us for doing that. All of us here today, every single person in the room, walked in with some of that, myself included, some of that in our souls. Uh, take that away. Wash that away. And may you be so, so much more important to us that, um, that we'd think more about you and bask more in your grace and be motivated to love and forgiveness out of that um, rather than just kicking it with the watchman on the wall in the city and not really concerned um, about you that much. So forgive us for that uh, and cleanse us. Help us to respond and to take communion and to leave here uh, full of freedom and joy and just knowing that we're walking with you right now if we believe in the garden, in the garden of life. I pray it in Christ's name. Amen.